Follow the Four Corners Podcast on social media. Like us on Facebook, Four Corners Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Podcast Four Corners. And check us out on Instagram, Four Corners Podcast. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. I want to take this time to apologize to the television audience for what they're about to see. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Four Corners Podcast. This is Shad here with Brad because Matt is out sick. Brad, how are you? I'm doing good. Rumor has it Matt got bitten by a radioactive termite and did not get superpowers. Uh, oh, God. Just just seems like you got... <laughs> what is that Family Guy joke? You, you seem to have contracted some form of rare cancer or something. Yeah. I believe he saw Spider-Man this weekend and was so wowed by it that... um. He doesn't know how to keep on living. Oh, isn't that a... Uh, oh, doesn't that joke show up in uh, one of those Liberty Mutual commercials, too? Probably. He wants to get superpowers, so he gets a spider to bite him, and then the next shot is him getting loaded into the ambulance with a huge allergic reaction. Yeah, probably. My favorite uh, one is the... the and then that's, um, that's not Liberty. That's Farmers, I think. The, the yeah. goat attacking the, the door on the truck. Mm-hmm. That's... That's, yeah, that's farmers. They're yeah. way more. They're way more memorable and entertaining. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so we want to uh, say thank you everybody for joining us for this episode. Um, whatever your your well wishes are for Matt, uh, you know, raise those up. We appreciate it. He'll be back with us real soon. Um, but we'll get our shout outs taken care of. The first one's going to go to Collar and Elbow, the wrestling brand. Collar and Elbow Use the promo code Four Corners Podcast. That's number four, capital C and Corners, capital P and Podcast, to save ten percent off your order. And our other shout out, I'm going to hand the ball over to Brad for. Um, that would be to Epico Cologne, who prefers the awesome because of the three PPC cannon um, <laughs> outfitting that it has. Brad, that sounds like a segue. It is slow as dirt, but it packs a wallop. Yeah. So um, next week. When Matt comes back, we're going to be doing our 2021 uh, year-end rewards. Also, quick apology, Matt's sick, and I got a stuffy nose because of the drastic weather shifts happening in my part of the world. So, yeah, you know, I'll apologize if that's coming through in any way. But since that was going to happen, Brad and I just figured we would talk some uh, some fun non-video gaming gaming pastimes. So we're going to be digging into some tabletop stuff. And Brad decided to lead us off with not a game system that has one of the richest and most complex lores tied into it um, that I, I can think of off the top of my head. I think Warhammer probably has a bigger one, but I prefer the Battletech one for cohesion and realism. And like I said, rich as opposed to, um, how did I hear it put once? The problem is you have Matt Ward write stuff and Matt Ward says, okay, so like there's a guy and he's an elf and he has a really big sword 
that can kill everybody, including that one unkillable guy, and I'm going to write in a story that he uses it on that guy. Um, so, yeah, Warhammer... Um, I used to be big into Warhammer Fantasy. I still have my Lizardman army that I will probably be selling in the near future. But um, the way that they handled the end times and the segue into Age of Sigmar just absolutely aggravated the crap out of me. So, um, and and their lore had been kind of dodgy uh, even before that. They're the uh, the Druki, the Dark Elves in it. They had this whole source book that I had a copy of. That reading it, there there is no way that their society could be remotely functional. But they're like, ah, oh, we'll put it in the book. It'll be fine. It's like, um, you know what? Fine. Whatever. I, I you know, I lost the urge to care. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like Battletech, I think it's a universal that no one likes Jihad. I think a couple <laughs> people do. But um, it kind of got mismanaged, I feel like, when they handed it off to WizKids and they did, like, the Dark Age stuff. Oh. Um, I did not like the the clicks version of it uh was that mage knight no they there was a mech warrior dark age was there one okay that went like six ish years i think um i did not oh. care for that i did like the ccg back in the day you know i never got to play i was coming of age in the era when magic was so popular that everybody was trying to make their own ccg and i read about all of these different ones some of them sounded cool, and some of them just sounded obnoxiously bad. Um, uh, Middle Earth was good. The Decipher Star Wars game was excellent. The I had my brother and I. We were kind of young for it at the time, but we did copy the Deadlands card game that was really interesting. Like I said, we never did quite get that figured out. Uh, my brother has a set of the Wheel of Time card game, which was actually pretty good i'm not gonna say it not was great, great but art, it was pretty good do you remember the the wheel of time pc game yes yes uh, uh i asked, i have a copy of that laying around probably in arm's reach here somewhere i bet that's um, on gog now story was god awful because they were trying to shoehorn in basically uh fps weapons but the multiplayer thing that you could do was really cool there was actually a tabletop game that came out around then that was interesting. For? Um, Wheel of Time. Oh, are you talking about the uh, third edition RPG source book? Yeah. With its supplemental module, Prophecies of the Dragon, that are both sitting on my shelf within arm's reach. Yep, and then there was also, for CCG front, 7th C was excellent. Yeah, um, I never got to play 7th C or Battletech. Or Werewolf. Did you ever play Pirates of the Spanish Main, which was um, the booster packs were little... Like, Where it had the ships you build in it? Yep. Had the no, little cardboard ships you build. I never got... I saw it, and I thought about picking it up, but I never got to. Oh, that one was fun, too. See, it, where I was, everybody was basically just playing Magic, and you couldn't get your hands on a lot of this other stuff. And even if I could, I wouldn't have anybody to play it with. So, you know, I the only one I ever played like competitively is um the MLB game I liked a lot. And there mm -hmm. was like a small league running of that for like a year. 
gotcha. that I played in. And I'd go play like Saturday mornings. Um, now, so for Battletech, I got into Battletech. Well, I knew what it was. And then mm-hmm. the cartoon hit. And then that led to me buying like the third edition. I looked this up because you and I have been talking about a lot. So I bought the third edition yeah. box set. Okay. Um, so that's when I got in. And then really... I think the clan stuff was wind starting was like about halfway through when I was playing. Okay. Because I remember I liked the thirty twenty five stuff, and this is a teenager, but I didn't like I didn't like thirty fifty as much because they did this stuff where they like upgraded the technology of the mechs, but a lot of like the new weapons did a little more damage, but like the heat to damage ratio was really bad on all of the inner sphere stuff. Yeah. Okay, so the the fun thing about um, the BattleTech setting, because it's so weird. All this grew out of a setting where you got to have giant stompy war robots, you know, big walking tanks with kind of futuristic weapons. But they developed this really rich setting around it, wherein you had succession wars and civil wars and well, I like the thirty. Sort of thing. I like the 3025 idea where the mechs were really rare. They really didn't know how to fix them or build new ones. So, like, if you had a mech, it was probably a family heirloom that had been in the family for, like, 100 years. And, like, if you got into a fight with it, you were probably going to back off as soon as you started taking damage. Because, like, let's say, you know, let's say, like, a Wolverine blew your arm off in a combat, like, it might take you a decade to find a new arm for your mech. I I prefer my stompy robots to be a little more brawly than that. I want to get in there and fight. Um, it, it's, it's funny you mention that, because in the setting, there the, the clans that you mentioned, and there is a gigantic backstory on this. This is... We're, we are we aren't even really scratching the surface we're we're barely rubbing it to be honest but the clans had this honor system of challenges and uh, direct combat duels trials to settle things but they did that because they lived in an incredibly scarcity type society there wasn't a whole lot of much or it the society developed in a time when there was very few resources. So the idea of doing these challenges was that it preserved resources and, and building on this whole honor thing, very cling on honor, honor with extra honor with a side of honor, hold the honor with more honor. Um, but Brad, you're talking about the inner sphere section being in kind of the same, uh, the same setting that way in the, the scarcity of, of, of parts and stuff. Well, I think it's interesting because I always kind of thought they hand-waved it as a teenager, but as an adult, I kind of see the, um, really, I feel like the clan invasion was doomed from the start, and they were going to fail regardless of, like, Comstar getting involved and stuff. There were a lot of ways that the clan invasion could have failed, um... And we're not even talking about the game. We're just having fun with the lore at the moment. But uh, there was a lot of hubris that came in because the, the the forebearer of the clans had told them that the inner sphere had been this lush Eden paradise that was ruined by 
immoral incompetence and that, you know, the, the might of the clans could come and sweep them clean. So they came and uh, to be honest, like one on one, the clan clanners were way ahead, like better yeah. skill, better equipment, but they did not have good supply lines they, they didn't, didn't have as many people. They didn't have a working understanding of insurgencies and like preserving territory. And they were used to honor duels instead mm-hmm. of large scale. Cause, cause really I think the best way I've ever seen someone describe it is, is um, invading the inner sphere is like invading Russia in the early 20th century. Like mm-hmm. they just have too much territory. They have too many warm bodies. They can just, throw at you and like you might have success and cause a lot of misery but ultimately like you just are not gonna succeed and i also think where um where they were kind of hosed is the way their honor dictated was made them not adapt to the way the inner sphere fought because like i said in like the 3025s the inner sphere was used to just firing some shots and like having stalemates and stuff and in the clan that's dishonorable also, the inner sphere had gotten to the point that you're talking about because they nuked the living shit out of everything in a desperate attempt to gain territory and planets and resources. They just they just nuked everything, and that's why there wasn't anything. You know, if you're trying to move to capture this manufacturing facility that can make more mechs, but the other side doesn't want you to have it then they're just going to nuke it. So now not only is that facility gone, but all the information tied to it's gone. And the, they they almost nuke themselves right out of the ability to travel between planets and stuff. And the clanners didn't fight that way. And so if the clan had come in if the clan had come in from the side of the uh the inner sphere that the Torian concordant was hanging out at, the Torians since they weren't part of the inner sphere, they were part of the periphery and they never signed the Ares Accords because that was the only way they can make sure the the great houses didn't screw them. The clanners would have been in way big trouble because then the tor- they would have shown up and been like, we're going to wreck everything. The Torian's like, can't fight that, nuke it, boom. And then all of a sudden huge chunks of clan forces would have been gone. And the clans were also – I'm sorry, but let me finish my thought. Oh, okay. No, let me finish this real quick. There were a number of different forces that could have stopped the clans if they had ever gotten in gear to do it. It just so happened Comstar was the one that actually did. Yeah. Um, but go they ahead. Also, I'm sorry. I was going to say their bidding system also really set them up for failure because, um, you know, they would bid low and they'd go in with, say, like four or five mechs and like some points of elementals. And then they would just be outnumbered. And they would probably win, but they would probably take more losses than they needed to because of right. their bid system. So I think I think they just they would have never succeeded because I think they would have hit a point where they were losing the outer rim worlds to insurgencies and their supply lines just weren't going to work. Like they just did not have the logistical <laughs> ability. And um, just by the honor dueling and how they did stuff, they were not they were not a a group of people built for long scale campaigning no because their their society wasn't built that way but as it turns out they decided to get in they got challenged by comstar 
uh, space AT&T to show up at Tukid, never forget. And uh, they said, all right, this is what we're going to do at Tukid. You come here, you're going to break up in your groups, and you're going to try and take these cities, and we're going to defend them. And uh, space AT&T kicked the crap out of them by instituting tactics that the clans had completely forgotten about. If you would like a full breakdown on that part, I can't recommend this enough. On YouTube, there is a series that's called Tex Talks Battletech. Look up Tex and the Battle of Tukid, and um, he likes to make use of terms such as the hippity-hoppity-get-off-my-property doctrine. But uh, he just does a great job breaking this stuff down. As far as the game itself goes... (laughs) <laughs> getting around to the actual game part. I wanted to say too, if you want to get into like that battle of Tukid and the the um, early clan invasion stuff, Michael Stackpole did the um, the Blood of Kerensky trilogy. I generally like Stackpole. Uh, he made a mistake in those in the in the in his uh, BattleTech books though, because the mechs are powered by fusion engines, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you if you shut down a fusion engine, it just shuts down. Like it just closes down. That's kind of that's part of the part of why it's desirable. They don't have meltdowns, except when Stackpole would write the 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 fusion engines would blow sky high, to the point that it got known as Stackpoling. <laughs> like in the fandom, if a mech blows right the hell up, as opposed to it's taking enough damage and just falls over because its power plant quit, that's called Stackpoling. Uh, it cra- that cracks me up. But they're still good books, and his um, yeah. Warrior Trilogy is good as well. Stackpole does a good job. Um, but as far as the game goes, you you have a lot of options because it's a point – it's point-based. Either you're doing um, battle value points, so the mech values are balanced by what what you're picking. So – You've got four classes, light, medium, heavy, and assault mechs, and they just keep getting heavier, starting from, I think, it goes from, what, 20 tons to 100 tons, right? Yeah, because I think a locust is about the the lightest thing you can get. Well, obviously, light mechs are going to be a lower battle value, so you could have an army of light mechs to go against a batch of assault mechs. Well, could, if you're, I wouldn't. If you're playing, you the traditional way to play is um is with lances. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's four mechs. Typically, it's one of each if you're going traditional. But there's a version called Alpha Strike that's for larger scale um, engagements that kind of simplifies some things down so that it doesn't take like 12 hours to to do big battles. But because it can, it really yeah. can. And like. That like light mechs, like a light mech versus an assault mech is just not gonna happen. Like no. you're gonna get blown well, up. but you can there is potential. You can because, be, but you ahead. can be smart though. So part yeah. of part of BattleTech is you have you have an array of weapons, but your mech has heat sinks, which you're if you if you just go firing everything off willy nilly, like you're probably gonna overheat your mech and like screw things up. So. Like if you like you can have lighter mechs and like use like say a fire starter which has just flamethrowers and you can like use that to hamper a bigger mech or you can get a bunch of fast mechs and if you if you if you have good knowledge of like where things are you can actually just whittle away at bigger mechs by 
you know, punching away at their heat sinks. You could go for their ammo stores. Like, there's all sorts of clever little things you can do. Or you can get something like, you know, a couple of panthers, which are, are, are fragile, but they have, like, a big bad cannon on their arm and yep. can, can actually do some stuff. Where I think, um, well, actually, I think where the lightweight, the light mech that I think stands out the best is the Jenner, because that has some real kick to it. Because I believe that has a missile array and some lasers on it. It's got, um, I believe the classic setup on a Jenner is two medium lasers and an SRM-4. But part of what makes the Jenner work, it's just so damn fast. And it's got jump jets. That stupid yeah. little thing has jump jets, which is crazy. It's, it's so fast, it's so hard to pin down. The thing about Battletech is you could have the biggest, meanest, stompiest mech you can. Great. Let's just for the sake of iconic, you have an Atlas, a hundred ton Atlas with its big skull cockpit. Your Atlas can be knocked off by a 35 ton urban mech because the urban mech has is a little mean trash can mech that's so sh it's shorter than everything else and it's slow, but it mounts a big honking gun on it. It has an AC-10, doesn't it? The base one has an AC-10. There are AC-20 models. Uh, there's there's a lot of urban mech variants, but one good shot from that could blow the cockpit clean off your Atlas. That's always the risk you take, and because um, nobody's invincible, you're you could be a juggernaut on the field, but you're not invincible. And you have to be smart. Like that's the other thing. Like. If you if you get too close to things, if you don't get in range, like you can really you can really like damage yourself. Like you could have like a couple of medium centurions just pot shotting you with long range missiles from afar, and if you don't close that gap, they're just gonna whittle you down. But like let's yeah. say you have something with a lot of long range weaponry, and you let something close the gap with you, you could find yourself with no options to hit them anymore. Yeah, that's. There, the you have a lot of mechs. It, it it seems like they fall into either generalist categories or specialist categories, and there are some that are missile boats like the Archer, uh, your base model Catapult. Um, sometimes your Stalker, but since it's an assault, it has more. It's got more close range stuff on. Those are all about just hitting with missiles from way far away. And they're about grinding the armor off of whatever you're hitting at so that whenever you get close enough, you can you can knock it down, right? Well, that's great until something gets right on top of an archer, at which point it's entirely possible the archer's got nothing. Um, the other fun thing... Especially uh, if something like, like the rare like hatchet man or axe man gets yeah. in close on you like that, you're in trouble because they have melee weapons. Yeah. Um, or like a Banshee. Or a Charger. Is, well, uh, technically, yes, on the Charger, but uh, I, I look at the Charger as largely a joke. Um, well, no, the, char the Charger is a joke, but what the Charger does do well is if you if it, it's very fast and it's armored For well enough. For an assault. Yeah. No, I think is it a large? No, it's an assault. Okay. It's a hundred tons. Okay, but it it's armored well. It has fists because hands are important if you're going to melee, 
And it, I think it has like a six speed, maybe. Uh, I don't think it has a six. It might, might have a five. It might have a five, but it's faster in assault. Like it's really faster in assault. Cause like I think an Atlas has like a three. Yeah. Like an Atlas isn't going anywhere quick. So it um, it can close distances, but it has like it has to close distances because I think it has what like six small lasers, maybe nine. Five. 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 Yeah. It's, and it is not. Um, that, that's part of why I consider it a joke is that it is not great. Well, the thing, the thing that I think is smart with BattleTech though, is there are mechs that in universe make total sense and have their uses, but um, as far as the game goes, you probably don't want them. The my favorite example, because what has happened in a lot of cases is that there are mechs that have a certain niche role that they fill. But given the period of rarity of mech, or given that you can't predict how a combat is going to shake out, they might get pressed into other service. A rifleman is is like an archer, where an archer is long-range mi- missile fire support. A rifleman is long-range ballistic fire support. And if you put a rifleman way in the back, and he's got lines of fire, then it can do a boatload of damage. And that's great. But uh, Rifleman is the heavy version. Uh, a Jägermech is the medium version. Um, if anything closes in on them, then their default armor is, is basically paper and lots of goodwill. Uh, and you can blow those arms off real yeah, real you can easy. blow the arms off real easy, or you can just punch right through the center torso and blow it right the hell up. Yeah. Nothing's going to stop you on that front. Now, if you want, they, like, an all-rounder, you have your, your Warhammer. So that has – you have two PPCs on that, which are long-range, but then it has short-range missiles, and I think it has a medium laser in there somewhere. Defaults so, The default on a Warhammer uh, – I forget the number, but I think it's a 6R. Yeah, it's a 6. 6R is that you're going to have... It's got two PPCs. It's got two medium lasers, two small lasers, and two machine guns. The small stuff, machine guns and small lasers, are not... uh, They're not... the, The purpose is that they're either for wiping out infantry... Uh, which you know sometimes you just gotta nuke some uh, nuke some hippies, or therefore um, you get in close and you're 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 doing the the rock'em sock'em robots bit, then those support weapons can fire off. And it's but, to keep the light like the the like a command like a bunch of commandos from getting in close for you and you not having options. Right. Because a PPC is not a good short-range weapon. Like, a PPC, no. you're supposed to stand back and, like, hit from quite a few spaces away. I think that's, like, a 10-spacer. It has a minimum um, effective range on it. That's that's how... Uh, the, like, the PPCs, once you get inside that range, it just doesn't work. So... They might get you, but... Um, they're probably going to stop because a PPC has insane heat on it. And I think a war yeah. mech can't fire both without taking a, like a couple points. A warhammer. If you're only firing the, if you're firing from no heat accumulation, 
you can fire both of your PPCs and be fine. But then after yeah. that, you got to start being real careful. Because I think I think to firing two PPCs now. I now remember I'm talking about twenty year twenty something year old, twenty five, twenty seven year old BattleTech here. But yeah. I think I think in that version, firing two PPCs was twenty points of heat, and I think the Warhammer had eighteen heat sinks. If you want, uh, you know what? I'll make a recommendation. If you want a nice, easy introduction to BattleTech, then there is Harebrained Schemes in 2018 put out a game that's just called BattleTech. It's a decent approximation of the tabletop game, um, and it's fun. You know, it 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 does a good job um, building you up to the uh, you know, to the heavier stuff as the story goes along, it's it is worth your time and money. Let's put it that way. And um, you get to introduce to a bunch of mechs in it. Not all of them by far, and the clans are not in it at all. But that's okay. So you'll get introduced to a whole bunch of this stuff that way. But the the thing that makes BattleTech just so appealing to me, other than big stompy robots are cool is that you have um, you just have so much customization options you have so many choices and the uh, the galaxy that it takes place in is so widespread and so diverse you can make just about anything you can make a mercenary company in it you can be um, a militia for one of the great houses you can be uh, one of the lesser houses in one of the um, one of the the star nations, one of the different star nations, something like that. And there's lots of different points in history you can play in. There's there's a lot of options for you to find. It's like, hey, I really like this. This is what I want to do. Um, I read a story. I think it was from uh, the BattleTech subreddit of this guy. He had a he had this friend that started playing BattleTech. He wanted to start playing it, um, and he, he was trying to convince his dad. Well, his dad was a uh, first-generation first um, Japanese immigrant. He's a Japanese-American immigrant, and he's trying to convince his dad to it, and his dad says, well, I'm not really about this, but tell me about it. And so he starts describing the great houses, and when he described House Corita or the Draconis Combine, you can tell either one, his dad said, I will absolutely support you playing this game if you play as um, the Draconis Combine. And his dad would come to the hobby shop and just sit quietly and watch his son play. Like, there's a lot of fun you can have with this. And I don't know. I think that story's really cool. But what I like about it is there is there's incentives to act a certain way, like depending on your map. Like if you're fighting in a city, you have to behave a certain way or your mech might like slide into stuff. Oh, or yeah. If you're on a map with water, like it behooves you to go to the water and um, and hold it because if you stand in water, it like benefits your heat management. Or if you have a waterfall, like you want to control that waterfall because being able to mitigate your heat better provides you with an advantage. That's great, unless there's nothing obscuring line of fire to that, too. Yeah. 
in which case then you've got a problem of like I'm am I trading heat mitigation for getting hammered with clear shots I, I don't know which you know you, there's lots of trade-offs high ground is important because you yeah. have more clear shots well, I think your there's, range gets better for every level of elevation too I think you're right but uh, it's, I sometimes it's, though because I haven't played it in a long time I sometimes get it confused with um there's this awesome game Hasbro had in the 2000s called Hero Escape. Okay. That was this wonderful. You could the terrain was like almost like Legos. So it was this miniatures okay. game with this like terrain that like it had these hex pieces that you could just build. You could just build like a mountain if you wanted to, or you could build like a volcano if you wanted to, or like this giant like river set if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then um, it had like. It would come out with different sets. You might have like cybernetic gorillas you can play as or like these like robot (laughs) snipers or like FBI agents. It was a really cool game. Okay. well, the um, let's put this. There is so much you could get into with Battletech and um, we may in the future um, investigate getting a uh, a the the closest thing that exists to my knowledge of a. a Battletech expert out there um, to come on for an episode at some point, but um, we'll so we'll we'll save some for that. But it's uh, also making a comeback right now. It's about it three years into making like a heat, like the, the 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 publisher has done some kickstarters. It's really gotten some momentum, and um, Games Workshop did some really crappy things, which they want to do, and finally like chased off part of the community. So. Chased off a lot of the community. So Battletech is probably in the best place it's been as far as like the tabletop game. Probably the best place it's been in for almost fifteen for, or twenty years. Yeah, for about twenty years. Yeah. Um. So it, it, it's a it's a fun time to get into it. Plus, the Battletech community is actually really welcoming of new people. They're just happy to see new people. And if you're like I, you know, I like playing as a you know, I plan like playing as a dickhead planner. They're like, well, all right, there are lots of people that don't want to fight dickhead planners or, you know, it's, it, there's just so many choices that it almost doesn't matter what you want to play as. It's just the flavor can be a lot of fun that way. And it doesn't have the learning curve that Warhammer does. Like <clears throat> you can be a complete noob and, you have you have the dice there, and you might be able to give like a super experienced player like a run for their money. If the yeah. dice roll well and you play smart, like you might give them a run for their money. Whereas in Warhammer, they'll just steamroll you. Yeah, yeah. There's, I had some of that whenever I was playing Warhammer Fantasy. Is there was a, I, I had to work a lot to get the pieces to finally click into place for how I would play, and then it worked then. But um, anyway, it's basically it's it's um, miniature wargaming, but instead of using, I don't know, Civil War figures or whatever, Games Workshop, whatever, big stompy robots. So, so you, um, you had one you wanted to discuss. Uh, well, with me, I do, because, OK, so we're going to we're going to move from um miniatures gaming into RPG stuff. And we'll go ahead and get this out of the way at the beginning because some of the RPG stuff we've either talked about before, there's a lot of people talking about it. But 
<clears throat> the um, there is one that's come out relatively recently. Let me look at the. Yes, my cat's a fan of it too. Uh, I want to look at the the publishing date. I think it was like it's been out for between Not I think like long. four and seven years. But that's that's short for like. Oh, uh, it was crowdfunded in 2015. Okay, so it's been out for a bit. It is that's, a that's, system. That's relatively short though for a tabletop RPG. Let's be honest. For a successful one, yeah. Yeah. Because um, there's lots of them that that fizzle out. But this is a game that is called Blades in the Dark. Now. What in the world? It sound, Blades in the Dark sounds like all kinds of other um, fantasy stuff. Well, that's not really what it is. What Blades in the Dark is... Sorry about that. Your cat's very upset tonight. She wanted to rub her face on the microphone, and it's like, no, that's not happening. Um, the biggest selling point for Blades in the Dark is the system. You know when you, you sit and you watch Ocean's Eleven... Or, or something similar. Like, okay, we're going to do the thing, and these guys are going in and stuff, and they go, and they come up to the door, and there's a keypad on the door, right? And they're like, and they they kind of look at it for a second, you know, well, how are they going to get back that? And then it flashes back to their prep phase of the heist. They're like, how are we going to get this keypad? And at that point, like, Brad Pitt and George Clooney are talking to the security guard, and they're having a good time, and they get them all liquored up, and they... They're like, hey, where do you think we find it? And the guy's like, oh, we can go this way. And they watch the guy punch it in while he goes in there to look for something. That's what Blades in the Dark is about. It's basically some form of heist or criminal enterprise that is um, – good God. What is she – anyway, it's some form of heist or criminal enterprise – where you have these steps you have to get through and the the section the action doesn't kick in until you hit your first obstacle something goes wrong how did you prepare for it what kind of equipment did you bring with you um you know does does your your the muscle in your crew is, is does it turn out he's wearing a kevlar vest whenever the security guard turns around and tries to stick a knife in him or something and it's it's because whenever you go in on a you're going on a job, you also you don't decide what you're taking with you because what you're doing is that you're retconning all of your prep during the mission for stuff you would need. So you go in with a certain level of load and you have that many slots worth of stuff that you've brought with you and you declare these slots as you go. So, you know, the guard realizes you're not supposed to be there and pulls a knife and turns around and goes to stab you. And you're like, well, to resist this damage, I'm going to mark off one point of load and say that, you know, my guy was wearing chain mail underneath his, he's wearing uh, chain mail and padding underneath his shirt. So when the guard goes to stab him, you know, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't get hurt. Another thing blades in the dark does is encourages you to actually have a, like a gang, a full-size gang. So if you've got four players, it actually benefits you to have multiple characters per player because then that way you can build your, your gang reputation and your resources out. It's There have been versions that have been d- adapted for the Shadowrun setting, which is what um, one of my gaming groups does is we're doing the... We are playing a version that is the Shadowrun uh, version of Blades in the Dark, 
Shadowrun was... needs that because Shadowrun <laughs> might be like the best setting ever that has never had a good game system behind it. It's we'll we'll get into Shadowrun in a minute. Um, the uh, the author of Scott Lynch, the author of the Lies of Locke Lamora series, gave their his blessing to these guys to make a version for his setting because it fits perfectly. For the uh, the lies of Lockelmore stuff, um, the base setting that comes in the book is kind of this weird apocalyptic steampunk kind of thing. That's uh, really it, it, it's its own thing very much, um, but you don't have to use that. There there are adaptations for all kinds of other stuff, and as a rule system goes, it relies a lot on a creative um, GM who is skilled in improv. But it is a lot of fun because a lot of the agency... It's kind of like when they did the new 7th C. You don't... In a, in a classic RPG, you might look around the room and go, okay, what's in here? Well, in 7th C, it said, as long as if a character... A player declares what his character's going to do within reason, then just have him do it. Blades in the Dark does a lot of the same stuff. If you're... Because you'll say, you know, your GM will say, okay, you're going to have a challenge that is going to be either controlled, risky, or desperate. And you say, well, I'm going to meet this challenge with this skill in this way. So there's a lot of agency that falls to the player as opposed to it's like, well, I guess you're going to have to roll a grapple check. And it's like, well, my, you know, my strength score sucks and I don't want to roll. It could be like, well, maybe I'm not rolling a grapple check. Maybe I'm burning a point for my preparation that, you know, I have a taser in my pocket. So whenever this monster man bear hugs me, I'm going to taser him in the testicles. It's, it's a really, it, it the, the learning curve's not huge and it's a really good system. I, I have to advocate for it. Cool. That sounds good. So since we brought it up, let's talk about a uh, shatter run. Oh gosh. Which um is an excellent setting. There's some good novels about it. Um, it's essentially like a Pandora's box post-apocalypse where um, all these magical races now reside in the world. And they've done like kind of an interesting like this is like the new boundaries of the world, like Seattle's like its own thing and stuff. And um, it's a really interesting setting, but I think it's had five or six editions now and each edition has had some glaringly awful problem with it. Part of Shadowrun's issue is its signature system is having um, – I'm going to shake this real quick for emphasis – lots and lots of D6s because the idea is that whenever you stack all your stuff up, you're rolling a bunch of D6s looking for successes that depending on your your difficulty rating – usually it's a 5 or a 6. Sometimes it's a 4, 5, 6, but it it can – like in third edition, there were ways to break it to where it was all the way down to a two to a six in some cases. Or the biggest issue that Shadowrun tends to have. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in what my I think my biggest issue with it is. Go for and they, it. They took it out for I think fourth or fifth, and then they put it back in, which really annoyed me. But the decker is a big problem with Shadowrun. The the hacking of the Matrix, because the internet in this is referred to as the Matrix. Yeah, because this game existed before the like the popular popularized internet. Yeah, I think, what, did it have 
an advent in the early 90s, maybe? Anyway. No, I think it was late 80s. Kind of a Johnny Mnemonic takeoff or something. But what you run into is that while you have someone that's doing the hacking portions of the game, everybody else is just kind of sitting around waiting. And then while you're doing the combat portion, the hacker is just kind of sitting around waiting. And you're effectively splitting the party for the enjoyment of the game because you'll have, I don't know, an hour or so where the hacker's doing stuff but nobody else is. Yeah. And the rules rules for, like, the Matrix can be really dodgy depending on the edition. My experience with them has been that they get very complicated very quickly. And as complicated as the rules on that get, it slows it down because then you got to look stuff up. And you're like, well, what are we going to do here? Well, I don't know. Uh, and so on and so forth. And then it got more complicated when in, I think it was 4th edition, they added the Technomancer which was a matrix magic user. So now you have two systems to keep track of at the same time. You have to do the magic stuff and you have to do the matrix stuff. And, you know, it's here's the thing. It's cool. It really is. And this, there is, oddly enough, here comes Harebrained Schemes again. They put out, um, it might have been 10 years ago at this point, it was Shadowrun Returns. Um and then there was an expansion that had a new campaign called Dragonfall. Now, one thing I did like about Shadowrun, and they might have done away with this in newer editions, but I'm talking about like third edition is, so it was a point by game, but a stat that you had was wealth. Uh-huh. So then if you put points into wealth, that would get you things like a nicer apartment, some informants, and like a certain like level of gear for yourself. And there was also, like, the cybernetic enhancements where you could actually enhance yourself to not being, like, alive anymore. Well, there's... Both of them are still there. Um, the thir- In third edition, the preferred character generation method was called the priority system. You had A through E, I think. A, B, C, D, E. And alphabetical order, A was the most important thing for your character, and E was the least So if you wanted your base stats to be just incredibly pimp, that's A. and Or you could have money be the biggest thing, which means you could start with more equipment, more cyberware. Uh, They did introduce something that is called Bioware, which are biological augments. It's not just putting robot parts in you and making you a cyborg. It's also biological augmentations that are kind of like cyberware, but you have cat's eyes or you have... uh, you know, your cyborg could have wired reflexes so you react faster. But the, um, I think the Bioware was something like uh, broadened neural pathways yeah. or something like that. So you could get something similar. I and then the you don't set off. stuff was lame, personally. Uh, you know, it's all right. It's, it, it's got drawbacks that balance the advantages. Like, you know, with Bioware, you can walk through a metal detector without setting everything yeah. off. But um, Bioware was not typically – Bioware was typically better at some things than Cyberware was, and Cyberware was better at more direct application stuff, I think I'd say. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's kind of 
this is not a good comparison at all, but roll with me. It's it's kind of like cyberware was the arcane magic from D and D, and Bioware was more like the divine magic, where it's, it's yeah more supporty or or buffy in general, I guess. So is there another? Um, there's well, we another kinda... system we talked about, um, and I don't remember what it was. I guess we could just mention Deadlands though, because we both have a have a. I like Deadlands. Um, Deadlands is. I'll be honest with you. Most of my Deadlands RPG experience actually came out of doing the D20 version. Oh, they uh, have a Savage Worlds version now too. Yeah, they had that first. That one existed. Uh, well, maybe it wasn't Savage Worlds. The, no, the first original, version of it. The first version you did like poker playing cards. cards. Yeah. yeah. And in doing so, you know, you've got a. You're using playing cards for for your character generation and your combat and stuff. Okay, cool. But, God, that was a lot to keep track of. And whenever I got into it at the time, I started in RPGs right at the beginning of D&D 3.5. And 3.0 had what was called the Open Gaming License, which said anybody can use this system for... Um, you can use this system, basically the stuff from the, the player's handbook. Anybody can use that, but you can't use expansion stuff or things you add on have to be your own creation. They can't be pulled from other Wizards of the Coast sources. So you had, like, Deadlands had a version that was based on that. Not great, but it was more accessible. Um... Because the was, there was a time in the '90s where a lot of systems were trying to get away from dice, and the thing we learned from the '90s is um, very few things beat dice for resolution. Well, there's, there's one that is completely done. It was the Amber Diceless Role Playing System. I know of its existence. I've never played it. I've I've heard of it. Yeah, I know it's out there. I think I got it in like one of those. Um, drive through RPG, like, charity bundles where you just get, like, a bunch of stuff. I think I probably have that sitting in my account somewhere. Oh, okay. I've never messed with it. I just know it exists. But... I'm getting too old to, like, learn new systems. That's become, like, a flaw where I just can't sit down and, like, absorb a new system like I used to. I don't mind learning a new system, but then there there are some that I look at and I'm just like, you know what? I, I don't want to do this one. Um... I'm I'm okay without having I'm okay without having the ultra complex one in my life. I need um, I need modern streamlining and modern like editing techniques in my my stuff now. I can't <laughs> deal with like I can't deal with the old like cuz Pathfinder 2 was really guilty of being overly complex and um yeah, poorly yeah. edited and um that really turned me off to their system. Sure. Well, Okay, so uh, okay for comparison's sake with D and D, I like I said I got started playing right. It was either at the end of third edition or at the start of three five. They had when third edition came out, the the transition from using Thaco to hit armor class zero, where it was better. You were trying to have enough of a role to bring the opponent's armor class down to zero so the lower your attack bonus was the better something like that 
it, lower when they your, made the lower your AC was the better. Like okay. it, the two, 2.0 had the problem. Well, second ed, sorry, had the problem of sometimes lower was better and sometimes higher was better. And um, that's one of the things like 3.0 streamlined is higher is always better. Right. They made them very. It made it very simple. This is, you roll this, you add this to it. Does that equal or exceed this number? No? Okay, then you don't hit. Does it? Yes, then you do hit. And for the most part, everything is playing around on different versions of that, which is fine. That's great. And then 3.5... It's good for teaching (sighs) someone, though, because you can kind of like come to their skills when they need it and kind of coach them through some things, but it can always just be like, okay... You need to roll to beat this number, and yeah. that that's a lot easier to teach someone. Yeah. Well, when it comes to ease of teaching, I'll get there. Three five three zero three five was fun because they put out a lot of content for it. It was not balanced well, but they put out a lot of content, so there's a lot of stuff you could do, a lot of sources you could draw from. That's fun, but the problem is. They put out so much stuff that it's like, well, the 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 Munchkins went ballistic with, I'm gonna pull this from this and this from this and this from this and this from this, and your GM will go, I don't even think half those books exist, and they go, yes they do, and it's like, well, I haven't read them, so I'm not gonna let you use them. I like being able to customize my stuff, but there's gonna come a point when it gets a little overwhelming. <laughs> I feel like fifth kind of went in the other direction because i feel like when i played fifth there's a lot of times where like we have to do something and we have a variety of characters but like you're never quite you always have some sort of gap like you're never really good at anything or multiple things so like there's a lot of times i feel like in fifth edition we were we would just sit around and be like well like so which of us is gonna fuck this up the least (laughs) See, the thing that 5th edition has going for it more than any other D&D edition is it is much simpler. There is less complicated for the sake of complicated stuff going on. um, Because with with 5th, it's like, okay, are you disadvantaged, have an advantage, or neutral? Okay, add those bonuses, now roll to hit. Yeah. And if you have damage. if you have nothing, you just add your add your modifiers and roll. If you have advantage, you get to roll two d20 and take the highest. That means you're really really good on some. If you have disadvantage, you roll two d20 and take the lowest. That means you're you're really behind the eight ball, and it never gets more than that. You never roll more than two d20s. You can't have super advantage or disadvantage. If you have advantage and disadvantage, they cancel out. It keeps that sort of thing very straightforward, and they added in proficiency bonus, which takes the base attack bonus and the saves progression from 3-5 and just simplifies that. Now, they I, found a way to make it very accessible to new players without with it still feeling like 
you're playing D&D as opposed to 4th edition where they were trying to lean hard into picking up people from MMO stuff. See, the problem I have, though, with with people that didn't like 3.5 is a lot of their arguments, like I thought some people had valid, valid arguments, but a lot of people would get really hung up on disingenuous like points like attacks of opportunity and being like, I don't understand that. Like, it's not a hard concept. If your character moves and you pass through a square with an enemy they get to attack you. So if, if you, you walk through yeah. two goblins, they both get to attack you. If yeah, unless you've got something that says otherwise. Um, if you pass through the space of someone who holds a weapon that's hostile to you and they can reach that space, they get an opportunity to smack you. That's yeah. that's what it is. But there are. Um, there are fifth edition made that simpler, even simpler, because it, you have to leave a threatened area to provoke an attack of opportunity. And the way I, I the way that that makes sense to me is, you know, hop in a boxing ring. You are boxing with the other person. Every time you take a step, they don't get a free shot at you. You can circle each other. You're staying in your threatened area the whole time. But if you try, try and withdraw. They have the opportunity to smack you because you're putting everything you got into getting away. So, you know, 5th edition simplified that, too. It's nice, and Wizards of the Coast made d and well, Hasbro now, I guess, made D&D Beyond, which is really, on one hand, it's digital content, which means that if Hasbro died in a firebomb, then yeah, you would lose it. But on the other hand, as a utility, it makes spell selection easier. Everything is on your sheet, so you don't have to go flipping through books to look well, stuff you know up. What, you know what I like about 5th Ed, and I have actually done this, is if, you, if you're if you a magic user, you can buy a deck of cards with all your spells yep, on it. Or you if can. you're a GM, you can buy and I have it sitting right here on my shelf. You can go and buy the cards for the monsters all the way through the game. Like if you're, if you're doing low level, Oh look, they have zero to level five monsters. This is a deck yep. of cards. They have, they have found a way to merchandise the convenience very well. They've done better about not flooding the market with source books and like, that's also books true and stuff this time. Like they do a lot of adventures now for people to go through, which I think is great. But if you can get away with just the three books, they don't really add many classes. There's some stuff like if you want gear, they have that and stuff, but they're yeah. pretty good about not um, flooding the market with, well, like there's these other 10 books that have like five classes a piece. If you want like more variety, they, they yeah. did good with that. See the, the problem that three, five ended up with is there was just so much stuff that at the end of the run, they published the magic item compendium and the spell compendium. This is all of the bonker stuff that we have put out for this edition in one place, maybe with an extra balance pass on top of it. And it's just like, wow, you had so much stuff. You had to recompile them into another book. Um, now the other side to it is fifth edition or D and D isn't necessarily something that fits for everybody. It is popular because it is well known, and it's so it's easier to find people to play it. And it does. I think few games do combat as well as D and D. There's 
D and D lends itself very well to to some good old hack and slash. Get in here, do this, and go. But I mean, as far as far as like damage resolution, and like um, how injured you are, like they, a lot of games really abstract that out. And I oh, know yeah. people hate on hit points, but like D and D is a super easy game of okay, roll. Okay, you hit them. Now roll for damage. Like it really yeah. does. It does damage a lot better than most systems. Now I will. My favorite RPG system in existence does not do hit point damage. Um, the second edition of Mutants and Masterminds is my favorite because it's just similar enough to D20 stuff that some things are familiar. It's true 20 is what it's called. Yeah, but cause the only die you need for it is a D20. You could have an entire – I did this once. I had a room of eight people playing Mutants and Masterminds together – and we just pass one d20 around to do stuff. Yeah, but what I like about it, that system is it handles damage really well because you make a con check when you take damage. So it is possible, and I've seen it happen in a game. You can one shot someone if you, you can if you catch them like flat footed and take modifier like their defense modifiers off. You can really easily one shot someone. You can, or you can have someone who just powers through everything that comes at them. And Mutants and Mastermind, yeah, base books is talking about superhero stuff, but the powers are so customizable that you can do anything with it that you wanted to. I have played in Shadowrun games that were done with Mutants and Masterminds, obviously superhero games, um, in Wild West games with it. Uh, yeah, so, we did... so wait, the way it works, if you don't know... So you decide on the power level of the game. So when you decide yep. on that, that gives you so many points to invest in powers. And based on the power level, you can only invest that many points into the powers. Yes. So, but it gives you like the ultimate. It gives you, especially for superheroes. Like I once did like a boy that had a robot. So the boy had like barely any points put into him and the robot had all the points. Or yep. I had a friend that did like the he had like a sword and the sword had all of the power so he mm -hmm. had a sword with all this stuff like attached to it so if he did not have physical contact with the sword he was a normal yep. npc level character those are called container powers or device powers uh you can have an altered form power so for example if you say the magic word shazam you transform into your super powered stuff but if something stops you from doing it guess what you ain't got any powers right um, I did. I played in a, a fantasy uh, setup for it. Here was the fun part. I'm playing a paladin, holding the wall against this orc and goblin invasion. When their orc general comes walking up, and he's like eight feet tall, and he has a giant cursed axe, and his he and my character are just slinging it out back and forth. So when you take damage, you have to make your toughness save. If you roll a one on your toughness save. The amount of damage you take is scaled by how much you fail it by. He rolls a one on his toughness save. I had done power attack and all this sort of stuff to – because he was so big I was going to hit him, but to boost my damage as far up as I could. And then I rolled a 20. So I did. I one-shot the big bad after a big back and forth of us just wailing on each other in a – fantastically epic moment um 
you can it's just so flexible you can do so much my friend did a did a game where it was the river world except it, in the river world which is a pre-existing sci-fi thing that I only know a little bit about but it is what he did is he pre-pop he made a pre-generated characters of characters all throughout fiction Tarzan Indiana Jones the shadow um, Sam and Dean Winchester uh, D'Artagnan Robin Hood um, all of those things are in there and it is you know and you just Sarah Connor right and it all worked because of the mutants and masterminds system um, it, it's it's really I don't like third edition um, because it's it strays from the familiar enough that it's a hassle for me, but um, the uh, you can still find second edition books out there without a problem. Ink still, still works. You can still buy the PDFs off their site. Yeah. And, um, I think the, the my favorite second edition um, source book was Golden Age. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. Where it had analogs for all kinds of old Silver Age heroes or, or that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and it had like stuff like you know recycling paper for like the war drive and stuff like that. There was like some cool little touches in there. Yeah, yeah. There, I have a friend. I'm gonna hearken to this. He and I are working on doing. We're we're working on writing a supplement that we might eventually try and publish. For Shadowrun of um, Appalachian Shadows or something like that, and I'm I'm working on kind of plotting out all the stuff with it. I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. Um, have Have you fun. seen? Um, this is a setting for Savage World. It's called Necessary Evil. It's also a superhero one. That one's pretty much like the superheroes get blown up by aliens, and you're playing supervillains that now have to like protect the world while still being I've heard like about a supervillain. It. That one's fun. I've heard about it, but I haven't gotten to play it. So I figured the last thing that we do here is we could actually pivot into one other kind of tabletop game. And Brad's more familiar with this than I am, but Brad's the one that got me into it. Um, and we, we won't, we don't have to, well, um, Brad got me into Phil Singer games, legends of wrestling. Um, which I've had a lot of fun with. Brad, give us kind of an overview on it. So this one's kind of, um, so the wrestlers get cards. So this started way back in the 80s as like a um, sci-fi game. And if you if you play the sci-fi game, the, the ingenious thing about that is each new edition is a year of the promotion's existence. It's called the GWF. And um, as each new edition comes out, new wrestlers come in, guys retire, but also guys like, might come in as like a young rookie who sucks and then they might get really good and then they might get like crappy as they age and then leave. But um, so it basically you have like charts if you get into like turnbuckle or rope situations and then you roll on one wrestler's offense and the other wrestler reacts on defense and it goes back and forth until one pins the other. Right. And you have different tiers of offense and defense. It's it's fun because there are, I mean, Legends of Wrestling is composed of of real guys. Yeah, and it's 
it is there's a there's a level of randomization because of the dice so um it's always a little bit in question, but they are weighted in such a way that certain guys are just playing better than other people. So like <laughs> Brad Armstrong might surprise you with some like upsets here and there, but he's not going to beat like Luthez ever. No, like, no, it'll be like not going to happen. Yeah. It'll be like a big deal if he does. Yeah. Um, I have uh, in, in some of the stuff I've run, I had a Nikolai Volkov pull off a string of victories. And when I told Brad about it, Brad's like, he never wins for me. I think he had like a U.S. title run with the Iron Sheik at some point. And like, okay. Well, I've, but, for those playing, I've played this game for about 21 years at this point. Mm-hmm. So, um, I have like a long, like I, I've started new promotions here and there, but like legends I've played, I've played that since it like came out essentially. Right. So there's lots of um, there's lots of options. And, you know, my collection is nothing on Brad's, but I've got, you know, I've got a promotion where the Rock and Roll Express and the New Age Outlaws are both there. And um, the Miracle Violence Connection is part of it. And uh, who else did that team up? I've got the, the Road Warriors. Um, and like the one I'm running right now and Chad's seen the results and it's actually, it feels fairly genuine. I have like a deep South, it's not called deep South, it's called Southeastern championship wrestling, but I have like, it's like based on a Southern territory from like the seventies and eighties. And if you looked at my results, like it looks like a genuine promotion from that time frame because it is guys that would have been in a promotion like that. Like yep. it's got the Armstrongs, like I have, um, Road Dog there is Brian Armstrong. I have like Adrian Street, Jackie Fargo, the fabulous ones, the Moon Dogs, um, uh-huh. Tommy Rich, like that Austin Idol. Like so, it looks like a genuine pr- promotion from that time period. If you want more recent people, you know, you can get uh, an AJ Styles, a uh, Brian Danielson. Um, they do it, indie. It, they do indie yeah. sets. So like. You can get like PCO, you can get Danhausen, you can get like the Briscoes, you can get, you know, a lot of those guys. Mm-hmm. A lot of the elite you're, are there. You can get Kenny Omega. You're not going to pick up WWE people. It's just not going to happen. But there's a lot. You could pick them up in their pre WWE phase. Um, yeah, you might get them afterwards. Like you know, we got Rob Van Dam, and when the game came out, he was still like big in WWE. Oh yeah, but um, like. Pre WWE Cesaro as Claudio, you know I have one of those. Kevin Owens is in out there. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can get. It just depends on if guys agree to it or not. Um, there's been a lot of guys that took a long time, but you know they've surprised me with some of their signings over the years. One of the things that I really like about this is. Um, if you buy Legends of Wrestling from Phil Singer Games, you're dealing directly with the creator. Like this has not been bought up or redistributed or something like. No, that. he's he did he's done a podcast with me, like an old version called that I did Wrestling with Dice. He did an interview with me for like two hours about yeah. one of the editions. Like so, um, yeah, he's he he writes a lot of that stuff. He does like if you do like the digital conventions and stuff, like he's involved. 
Yeah. And you know, dealing... honestly, way back in the day, so yeah. this is before they had a big online presence. So way back in the day, you used to call for orders sometimes. You could do it by mail or you could call up. And um, sometimes he would be the one that would answer the phone to take your order back right. in the day. And you might just talk to him about stuff. It's it's fun. Um, it is a fun game. It'll surprise you with what's going on. I think the top guys in the promotion I'm doing, it's uh, – I haven't messed with it for a bit, but it was Randy Savage, uh, Roddy Piper, Diamond Dallas Page, and – I think Ted DiBiase was king. Yeah, Ted DiBiase was Ted DiBiase was building a new Money Incorporated. I think he had Kurt Henning kicking around, but he hadn't. But I think he was. You just started using him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Henning had just kind of started. I was building factions uh, with what I had, trios or more, because it's easier to book faction feuds than it is to keep track of like. 30 guys feuding with each other on a card. I do it very territorial. So like guys might just come in and do like a couple shots and then just disappear after I'm done with their story. But I usually only run like five ish storylines at a time. Yeah. But it's, you know, that's the other nice thing is you have whatever cards you have, you can use or not use, you know, it's I really, have Luthez. I don't use Lou because Lou kicks the crap out of everything walking. Well, I think I think what like because people like that are new to the game always want to be like, well, how do I play the right way? And it's like whatever is fun to you. And I told that to someone once. I'm like, if you want if you want Jimmy Valiant to have a feud with Luthez, and before their big match, like Jimmy Valiant disguises himself as the Easter Bunny and beats Luthez with a giant carrot. Like, if that's fun to you. Do it because you're entertaining yourself. Yes, it is. It is a game for you. Yeah. But uh, you can post it online, but the ultimate audience is yourself, and just yes. to have fun. It. You can play it with somebody else and do opposed roles, or you can roll for both sides of it. I've only played with one person one time. And that was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. <laughs> so. And I think I got DQ'd because he called me a cheater. <laughs> It's fun. It's also not super expensive to get into. I mean, it, if you're if you're gonna go out and get everything, it can be, but stick to a line. Yeah. If you if or, you if you want to get like everything for like legends, you're probably gonna be out like five or six hundred dollars. But if you want like the starter set, I think it's like forty bucks. But you can also cherry pick. Like, I don't want people from this set, but I like this set here. Um. And you can cherry pick what you want that way. So, But I will say part of the fun of the game is getting someone you don't know and learning about them so you can use them. Like, um, It's taught me about wrestlers like The Destroyer and Don Leo Jonathan and um, Ox Baker. Like, I've learned a lot just by releases in that game. Sure. So, well, Brad, was there anything else we wanted to hit on before... Nope, we I think put a that, bow on this. I think that's it. I think we are going to come back with a more in-depth BattleTech episode some point this year as a bonus episode. Yeah. Um, We're going to line put, some... i got to put some feelers out for some potential guests that way. Yeah. Uh, who know a bit more about the setting than we do. Well, but, uh, I, I used to know a lot about it, but like I'm just getting into it for the first time since like 1998. So like my knowledge is really rusty. 
yeah. So we're going to, I'm going to put that out there and see what I can come up with. And, um, cause I've got a line on, on potentially getting to some good guests yeah. on that front. But anyway, um, everybody out there, thank you for joining us for this episode. You know, it's kind of a laid back talking about fun stuff episode. Yeah. Um, Hope you all have fun. If there was, if there's a game or a system or something like that out there that you want to hear us discuss or want to recommend, hit us on our social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And um, you know, just just throwing this out there too. If you're listening to us, whatever platform you're listening to us on, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, if you could drop that five star review, that'd be pretty cool too. It helps. It, 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 I don't know why it does, but it helps us get more listeners. We yeah. actually we grew a lot last year. Um, we grew a lot. Like we went, I think we like, we like quadrupled our audience, like and per episode. Thank you thing all for, thank you all for tuning in. Yeah. Um, uh, we're happy to have you. Cause like our listens, our listens per episode, like quadrupled last year. <laughs> so it was, it was really nice. Um, and you know, we appreciate the listens. Also, if you're still listening to this episode in particular, you have a bit of homework to do for about two week, two to three weeks from now because we're going to be reviewing Transformers the movie, the oh, 1986 yep. cartoon. That's One. coming down the pike. Yep. And um, if everything goes according to plan, next week is going to be our year-end awards. Do we want to go ahead and just run the categories real quick? Just uh, I think you have those. I'm going to warn people. It's going to be very AEW heavy. Like I, we we had a discussion about that today, the three yeah. of us, and we all kind of admitted it. But then we kind of like broke down why it's going to yeah. be that way. Yeah, uh, and it's it's not part of it is not going to be for a reason that you might suspect. For me, so. for me honestly, and I'll, I'll I'll reiterate this next week. It honestly mine is so AEW centric because New Japan just frankly sucked this year, this last year. Hmm. For me, it was just what did I have the most fun watching, and that's been a lot of AEW stuff. But um, categories we have here, we have uh, men's wrestler of the year, women's wrestler of the year, tag team of the year, comeback of the year, uh, best character work, best on the mic, storyline of the year, um, a category called finally gets his due, as in somebody finally gets – you know, something that he should have gotten. Um, favorite faction. Uh, reinvention of the year. Feud of the year. Match of the year. Uh, manager of the year. Promotion of the year. Most improved. Rookie of the year. And worst promotion of the year. So all of those are going to be floating out there. Um, we're going to talk about all of those uh, in turn as we go. But, hey... What are your picks on it? And we'll see we'll see if we line up on that. And you know, we look forward to seeing y'all with us next time. So this is Shad with Brad. Um we've been in the ring, you've been in one of the corners. You pick which one, I guess. <laughs> and we'll catch you next time.